do it. But I feel like it needed some time because, I mean, this is Jesus praying. This is a big deal. We don't get a lot of exposure to Jesus' prayers through the Bible. So I think to spend a lot of time with it and talk about it definitely helps out a lot. All right, so let's take a look at it. Um, Let's go to John 17, and then we'll pray. So, Father, um, we want to understand your heart better. We want to understand your heart better. We want to move, act, and we want to think like Jesus moved, acted, and thought. That's our heart's desire. And so I thank you that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit so we can eventually look very much and think very much and act very much like Jesus did. And I thank you for the way that you're molding us and pruning us, as Michael said. And may you continue to do that. And we just thank you, Jesus, for setting a model for us showing us how to live, showing us where the priority should be, of showing us where we should really major in the things that are important. So we pray that you just bless our time, may you minister to our hearts and our minds, and will you show us, Holy Spirit, show us on ways we can put things in action. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so what we'll do, so the goal for today then is kind of look at this last part of John 17. So Jesus praying this whole time through John 17, right? Right before he goes to the cross, he's praying. He's, he's um, praying to God publicly. His apostles are there. They're hearing all of it. And God, in his great wisdom, has chosen to keep this preserved in his word so we would read about it later. Because there's not a lot of prayers from Jesus like preserved. Um, so we're going to try and tie up maybe some loose ends. Maybe that might have happened in a couple of weeks because we talked about a lot of stuff. And we'll, we'll kind of hit on really one major topic, I guess, uh, today. And then, uh, and then that should be it. We can go home and shovel some more. Sound good? All right. John 17. So we're going to pick up in verse 20. So it says, My prayer is not for them alone, So he's referring to the them as his apostles. People are with him right now. So my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that'd be us, right? We are the ones that will believe in Jesus through their message, the apostles' message. So that's us. So currently, Jesus is praying for us. Very cool. You might even smile about that. Verse 21. What does he pray? That all of them, so here's what we're going to do. Every time we have the word um, one or unity or some variation of those, just hold up a finger, okay? So that all of them may be one. Yeah, we're almost there, almost 100%. Okay. All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory 
that you gave me, that they may be one, nice, as we are one, nice, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, oh, we dropped a couple people, but we're still there, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So, there is one more, right? So I think there's a total of five. Yeah, so there's like five, and King James, New King James, NIV, I think there's only four. So only in three verses, right? Five, so it kind of drops off after um, verse 23 there. So 20 for 23, five times, one in unity. So it's kind of an important element there that he's talking about. And then after that, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, right? Just talking about that we would stay close, that we would see his glory, and that he's actually given us glory, and that also in verse 25, that the world would know basically through us who God is. So that's how Jesus closes up his prayer. And um, let's do a super quick recap, okay, of John 17. So he starts off the prayer by talking about glory. God, glory, glory. So glorify your son so I can glorify you. Right? And so we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And Michael actually just mentioned that before. And that's why I couldn't come up with really a better title for the past like three weeks. So it's like be glorified part one, be glorified part two, be glorified part three. It's just what it came down to. So in the first part was glorify your son so I can glorify you. And we talked about that that Sunday about how really we exist. We exist so that we can be in relationship with our Heavenly Father who created us. And the best type of relationship happens when we are close with Him, walking in fellowship with Him. And when that happens, He is glorified through our lives and how we act and how we speak and who we come in contact with. Not by necessarily how much we know. Not by necessarily how many degrees we have. Not by necessarily how much money we have. Not by necessarily however many accomplishments we've had. It's by being close with Him. And then He is glorified through that relationship because we are that close to Him. It's just, it just absorbs into us and just radiates off of us. So that was like the first part of his prayer. Then the next part of his prayer, he specifically prayed for those that were with him. And he prayed for protection of them. And he prayed for them to not be taken out of the world, but to be a light in the world. Like, God, don't take them out. They're going to stay here, but they're not from the world like I'm not from the world. So Father, be with them. And then... Also within that second part, he's talking about how whatever you have, 
given me, I've received from you. And whatever I now have, I give to them. And we talked last week about being generous, right? About trying to develop that mindset of not being a taker, but being a giver. Giving versus taking. And because Jesus, that's where his mind was. Everything he got from the Father, he just just put that thing back out there. He was just a conduit for God to flow through. That was all that he was about, being glorified and Father, man, whatever I'm receiving from you, I'm just giving to those around me. I'm taking nothing for myself. I'm just giving that out there to everybody, whatever it is. So we talked about that stuff last week, and then now he closed up the prayer with praying for us, the future believers, that receive the message from the people that were with him. Right? So it's all kind of linked together in a chain there. So I think you could tell the main issue in what we're talking about this morning in the part of Jesus' prayer is unity. Right? It's unity. So, I'm pretty sure everybody knows to get one person to do one thing really well that probably doesn't even come naturally to them. That's very difficult to do. Super difficult, right? To get one person to do one thing even fairly well consistently for a long time, that's really difficult. Like, it's so difficult that companies and businesses, they spend tons of money per year just in workshops, 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 trying to develop interpersonal skills and productivity. Because they're constantly trying to get the worker to become a better worker, to become a better worker, so it continues to help the company. Because for a lot of people, they don't exactly love what they do. And so when they're there, they're just trying to basically survive while they're there, get it done, and then get home to real life. So to get one person to do one thing pretty consistently is pretty difficult, pretty amazing to do. If you try and get two people to do one thing very well, that doesn't come naturally. That's borderline impossible. That's why marriages are very difficult, right? Because you're, tra- you're trying to get two people to go one way. Two people to submit who they are for the sake of the marriage. Just for the sake of the marriage. Two people have to submit that and go for that direction. Now within that is, well, what about my needs? And what about my appreciation and my validation and which are all important, but they don't drive the ship. What drives the ship is the marriage, the covenant that has been taken. That's what drives the ship. So there are things matter, but they don't become more important than the covenant that has been taken. And yes, if you follow that logically all the way to the end, it turns into a death for both parties for the sake of the other. Isn't that awesome news? <laughs> so we're doing some premarital counseling with Allie and Joshua next door doing Sunday school right now. I don't even know. They have maybe one kid, two kids over there right now. But we're going through stuff. We're talking about it, guys. This is our first session, our very first session is the marriage mindset. That's our first session. And 
we have a curriculum and stuff that we go through, but there's a few other things that I feel like God's just placed on my heart that we talk about first, and then we get into the other stuff. So the first session is the marriage mindset. And the very first thing that we talk about is, guys, listen, it, it's going to be a day where I'm, I'm hoping it goes great, everything comes together, you're all going to get dressed up, you spend lots of time planning for this day, for this event. I said, but I'll tell you what, that day at the altar, it's a funeral. It's a funeral. You are, you are pledging in front of everybody that you are dying to yourself and your needs and your desires for the sake of the other person. That's the first session because that has to be understood right away. Otherwise, we can't move forward. And that does open a whole can of worms. Right? So does that mean that what if they don't take care of me? What if they don't respect me? What? So we got to talk and address about all that stuff. And for the most part, right, unless there's extreme physical harm and, and detriment to somebody else, somebody has to leave the scene, for the most part, everything has to be done within a person's power to die to myself and just uphold the other person. And that's going to take a hit on our feelings. That's going to take a hit on our sex lives. That's going to take a hit even on our personal happiness and enjoyment from time to time. But that's like what we're talking about here. You know, unity. Heaven's unity, not, not the world's u- definition of unity. Because the world's definition of unity could be like, well, we can tolerate each other so we can kind of just get along. And heaven's is a lot deeper than that. So to get two people to go one direction, one way, specifically God's way, is like borderline impossible. Now, try and get a large group of people, thousands, millions, billions. <laughs> That's crazy, right? That's nuts. But Jesus was referring to exactly that point, saying, hey, listen, I want all believers, all people that believe in me, I want them to be unified. I want them to be one as we're one, Father. So that the world may know who you are. So unity is a huge deal here in Jesus' prayer. It's important. It's significant. And for us as a church, and for us individually, it means a lot. It has a lot of implications. So I wrote down some thoughts here about just this idea of unity. Because we, uh, as you go through the Bible and as you go through life, I think we, we all kind of had the idea that and understand that unity is tough. You know, if you've been involved in a marriage or if you've got some coworkers or if you've ever played on a sports team, to have everybody on the page for one goal, no matter what it costs the egos or people involved, is almost impossible. People almost always have their things that they need to have happen along the way. Otherwise, they're the most brattiest people in the world and you just can't get anywhere with them. Is that not the truth? And I say that no full well knowing. I've been the brat many a times. Totally understand that. So it's a struggle for us. And it's been a struggle all throughout the Bible. And I just, just to give you some quick snapshots, it started with Adam and Eve in the Bible. Unity was an issue. As soon as they got smarter... 
with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They got smarter and they got divided. Right? They got smarter, they got divided. She did it, he did it, <laughs> Snake did it. Yeah, they're constantly, right? Division, immediately, right away. Cain and Abel, they're two sons. Divided so much, one killed the other. Right? All sourced in competition and pride. Lot and Abraham. Another related family got divided. One wanted the world, one wanted God. Joseph and his brothers. Right? Remember, Joseph got sold into slavery by his own brothers. Then he went to Egypt. His brothers kind of did their whole life. But then Joseph, eventually, after 25 years or so, rose up to be in power in Egypt and then was confronted with his family again later in life. It's an amazing story. Genesis like 40 through 50. Check it out if you have time. It's awesome. But again, there's hardly any unity there in that family. Miriam and Aaron. Aaron led Israel. So if you read through your Bible... During Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this guy named Moses who's in charge, there was incredible dissension to overthrow him and be rid of him. Because the people are like, well, that's great, he got us out of Egypt, but he's about lost his mind. We're walking through the desert, we're not getting anywhere. And honestly, we should just go back. It was kind of better there. At least we had food that we needed when we needed it. And so huge dissension, so much so that they revolted against him. But it's crazy, right? No unity there. King David, a man after God's own heart, his own kids and his household was a disaster. So much so they tried to kill him and overthrow the kingdom. Jesus and his own disciples. So who we're reading about as he's praying. I'm sure as he was praying it, praying about this, he was thinking about his own disciples. He's been walking with us for three years. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? That's the conversation that they wanted to have. It's like, ah, you're not quite picking up what I'm putting down. You know, it's not connected. Paul and Barnabas in the early church in Acts had such a sharp disagreement. They were so, like, not unified in particular mission. Joining us on a mission trip, they were going on a mission trip. They were so not unified in a particular way of handling something. They're like, fine, whatever. You go there, you guys go there, and they just took off. It's the early church. And then there was more issues of just division as you read through like the New Testament, Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So right, there's this issue of unity. It's always been difficult, and honestly always will be difficult, to be unified and be going God's direction. And so that's why we'll find when somebody becomes a Christian, they decide to go a particular way in life, especially a home, mother and a father. They try to go a particular way. Many times they feel the squeeze. And they can feel something at work, man, just attacking, attacking, attacking. So there's artificial unity and heaven's unity. That's the way I tried to think of it. Artificial unity, heaven's unity. Artificial unity is based on the least common denominator. So artificial unity is just like trying to find somebody. Ah, yeah, we kind of connect and we hit it off, so I just kind of just stay there with that. 
and it just stays superficial just based on our interests. So we just seek somebody out, kind of, based on what we're into, what we can relate easily with, and then it just sort of stays superficial there. So that way, in case we see that person again, at least we got somewhere, something to talk about, and we're sort of unified around the thing that we like. Or in the home, artificial unity is just tolerating each other being able just to stay kind of under the same roof, you're not punching each other's lights out, but it's certainly not authentic or going anywhere real fast, right? You're basically just upholding the responsibilities of the home. So that's not what we're talking about. It's artificial. Right? What we're talking about is heaven-based unity. Heaven-based unity. And here's the way I think of it and the way I thought of it. Heaven-based unity is based on heaven's perspective. So that's pretty easy, right? Heaven's unity is based on heaven's perspective. In other words, we really don't know much about the unity that God and Jesus is talking about unless we're in relationship with God. And it also means we really can't live it out or experience it or create it around us unless we're a Christian, unless we're in relationship with God. Because it's a unity that this world knows nothing of. We know a lot about tolerance and awareness. I mean, we hear those phrases all the time. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but for the Christian, the bar is set a lot higher then we just get along in a room together. It's higher than that. Inside the church, it's higher than that. So here's some things that I think are involved in heaven's unity. Compassion. I think that's got to be at the heart of it. Jesus' heart was filled with compassion. That's how he moved many times. He said, just compassion. He didn't get into, well, you know, did you do this or did you do that? And and start analyzing and judging their life in a really serious way. Although religious leaders, he did. That's true. But people that were just hurting and crying out for him, there's a lot of compassion. So compassion, restraint. Heaven-based unity is many times restraint is a significant factor. That's the submission word right? we talked about in the premarital class. You're submitting or restraining for the sake of something greater, someone greater. And then the other element that I put down is communication. So heaven's unity has compassion, it has restraint, it has communication with one another when we talk about things. Right? Isolation doesn't do much to help that. Now, this whole unity idea, being together as one, a lot of people like the idea, and they should for a lot of reasons, but there is a line where unity stops. Because Jesus is talking about, in his prayer, to his apostles, to those believers. He's saying, man, listen, I hope among the believers that there's great unity. Or a.k.a. the church. And the church does have some issues, right? Um, there's a lot of, and I'm not saying denominations are completely sinful. I'm saying denominations aren't doing a whole heck of a lot of good if people can't talk to each other and minister along side by side. It's probably not a good thing then it's so divided. 
along denomination lines. Not a great thing. Got to find some kind of common ground to be able to work. But Jesus, the same Jesus who just taught unity, unity, make us be one so that we are one. Father, let them be one together. And Take a look at Luke 12. Go ahead, turn backwards in your Bible. Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 49. Luke 12, verse 49. So unity is important, but it's important in its place. It's important in the kingdom. It's important in the church. It's important among believers. Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus is talking. I have not come to bring fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. It's totally different, right? Sounds crazy, right? What is the deal? Verse 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus himself is in our prayer saying, Father, may they be one as you and I are one and may they be one together. And, and then in this place he's saying, and I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword. So, how do you come to terms with both of that, right? Because it goes back to the same issue. Jesus is concerned with unity and togetherness and coming together in his church family. The fact that there is a church family means that there is not a church family. Right? The church family is a separate group of people that have surrendered and submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. So that means there's a group of people that have not. The group of people that have not were desperately trying to come alongside and be like, man, you have a creator, somebody that loves you has a destiny and value in your life you don't even know about. And we're trying to come alongside and help show them that. Sometimes we get successful and they can see and they give their lives and it's amazing. Sometimes, for whatever reasons, they just flat out, no, don't want it, not interested. I got my reasons. And it's sad when that happens. But Jesus, because he is who he is, and he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me, that divides people. That divides people. So Jesus divides people. Within the church family, he brings them together. But in the world, he divides people. And many times you see in the scriptures, especially I think John 7 was another place where there's just one sentence that says, and Jesus divided them. Or they were divided because of Jesus. That was the phrase. It's just what Jesus does. He divides. The way of heaven just divides people. So I tried to write down some things. So hopefully that helps with that passage then. Right? Because of Jesus, there is division. There's unification too, but the other side of the sword is there's definitely division. 
And so that's why in a family, a son will give his life over to the Lord and be like, you know, I came home, want to tell his mom, Mom, I've been going to church, you know, did it. She's like, I know, I know. I give my life to the Lord. And she could flat out be like, well, what'd you do that for? That was stupid. That's just a controlling organization that just wants your money. Da, 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 da. You know, you can go down that whole route. All kinds of dynamics happen within the family because of Jesus, right? And they're very difficult waters to navigate, right? They're not easy. But there is a way to navigate it. Doesn't mean we just quit altogether and just say, ah, they're just stupid unbelievers, heathens. You know, that's not what we do. Go after them. There's incredible value in life. For whatever reason, they're just not seeing straight. God worked through me so they can help maybe see a little bit more straight. Not to the point of compromise, but somehow I can call out their value that you see. So, here's some things I wrote down. Some things that the enemy targets to disrupt or destroy unity. Because we want to be able to read the enemy's lies for what they are, right? We want to be able to see something coming at us and be like, no, no. Just dismiss it completely without even entertaining it and not waste our time on nonsense. Don't you hate wasting your time on nonsense? Like, I spent so much time this past week on this, like, thing I want to do for my classes, like, with my kids. I thought it was going to be really great, you know, and just, I spent all this time, like, developing it, and I don't have the time to do this, but I thought it would be a better way for me to be more excellent in my job and do better. It just sucked. Whatever, it, it was a horrible effort I was doing on my, it just wasn't good. <laughs> I thought it was going to be good. It just was bad. You ever do that? Yeah, you're just spinning your wheels. Like, ah, stupid, you know? It's just, that's what we'll be able to do with the enemy. Like, not waste time with his nonsense. Just be able to shut it down. Be like, no, I know that's from the enemy. I just, no. Let's find somebody else. Like, not me today. I'm done. Maybe before that was successful, not anymore. Right? So that's why I write down these things of, where the enemy tries to disrupt and distract us from unity. So you want to, you want to hear what some of them are? Okay, so some of these might be helpful for you. Here's one thing that disrupts or destroys unity is isolation. In a church family, that's like cancerous, is isolation. Man, if we're brothers and sisters, we actually have to be brothers and sisters. Got to be church family in each other's lives, around each other. It's not high school anymore where we just hang out with our clique and our group. Age, education, socioeconomical, it doesn't matter. You just cross all of us. Just love you. Love you too, you know? And then we talk about stuff where sometimes there's just a conflict and be like, I do love you, but I, I'm not cool with something right now. We, and I don't want the enemy to get a foothold here, so we got to talk about it. That was one, that was one successful thing. Happened versus these 21 days, there was an issue that came up. Um, you know, some people at church, and let me put it this way. I, I, like, I was, I, I knew things were coming, and, and things were about to happen, and I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a hold in all these people's hearts. I can't pull the strings that you can pull, Lord. And, I, you know, it's so obviously the enemy. I see it for what it is. I pray that this hearts, the hearts are just soft somehow your voice penetrates this crazy nonsense. Sometimes it just has to be the prayer. And I'll tell you this. At the end of that conversation, it doesn't always go this way, but at least at the end of that conversation, it went far above and beyond what I had hoped or expected. 
awesome restoration. Awesome restoration. Which for both parties involved, isolation in the name of being right would have been easier for both other parties. So they broke that chain and they broke down the enemy's nonsense of trying to cause a wedge in between. That's a huge win. And it just happens on a regular night of the week, just out of nowhere. And I was totally exhausted, like I said, you know, not now, you know. It was so good. It was so good. So isolation, just bad. Disrupts, destroys unity. Gossip that disrupts and destroys unity. Gossip, in the way I think of it, in the way I wrote it down, was a criticism where you're not really trying to help anybody involved, you're just trying to talk about it. If it's criticism where you're not trying to help anybody involved, I'm not sure if that's a conversation that probably should be happening. Right? It's just that that can so, the enemy is so good at just turning and twisting that stuff into something that's, that's very unhealthy and something that's very divisive. So gossip is, is bad news. Um, here's another one I wrote down. And, and these are things that I've just noticed through the years and continue to notice. So the enemy can use isolation, gossip. Another one, um, and actually, you know what? In that gossip one, I think that within the gossip, so this is kind of like a big one. It happens a lot in churches for whatever reason. And when it comes to the gossip issue, so we can have a conversation around the table about somebody, something, and, and not at all with the intention of helping them, just kind of talking bad about them. We all are familiar with that, I'm sure. Hopefully with us, the traction on that conversation stops with us. Like, ah, I just don't want to, I feel, not even just leaving the room. Sometimes it has, God's calling us to do more. Saying, you know, I, I, I just feel super uncomfortable about this. Can we just talk about something else? You know, leaving the room is kind of like good because it, it's sort of showing something, but many times God's saying, no, I'd like just, just going no place good. Oh, just say it. This is true. Yeah, it's kind of like a weak sort of... The kibosh. Sometimes you need the kibosh. You do. So the other thing that happens too is because we're in the social media age, gossiping happens a lot on that. And like, and gossip slash targeting happens on there. So we just have to be careful with that stuff. Because gossip slash targeting on social media, one, is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just... Have you ever read a social media post and been like, oh, I now believe that wholeheartedly? You know, crazy. And most times, things that make their way to social media, all the facts are not completely brought to the table. It's just a quick snippet of a thing that somebody just wanted to say in a particular light. So, like, gossiping, targeting, Christian social media, just, you know, people just slam people sometimes. They'll slam people, they'll slam churches, and it's just like... And many times, all in the name of, for the Christians, all in the name of, well, those people that I'm talking about or targeting, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. That's usually the umbrella it falls under, so that way they can kind of say and do whatever they want. It's true 
Jesus mentioned it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, wolves in sheep's clothing. They just come along, they seem all right, but man, they're a wolf. You can take advantage of people, take money from them, and do them wrong. Steal them the wrong way. And we've got to be on the lookout for that. For some people, it's like a full-time job for them. They're always aware of all the wolves that could ever be everywhere, and always warning and letting everybody know. And in my experience, those people that are always letting everybody know about all the wolves, in my experience, I've found that those same group of people, they are not very much in this camp also concerned about loving and touching everybody around them for the sake of the gospel. And so I want to tell them no about everything, but that same group of people, you'd find they're not really super invested in other people's lives and around them. They're just not invested. I mean, invested into people. It's weird, right? So, but that's like something the enemy can do. He's like, whoa, there's wolves in sheep's clothing. Make sure you tell everybody about it. One, it probably won't be successful on that social media thing. Two, there's a way to go about it, right? And we just want to know how to do that. So here's another one. Inappropriate use of sarcasm. That disrupts and destroys unity. Inappropriate use of sarcasm. I've done it myself. It's just, you know, I think something's funny, but it's not. And later you come find out, ooh, that was the wrong time, the wrong day, and the wrong thing. So inappropriate use of sarcasm is like, that, that can really disrupt and destroy because if somebody's feelings get hurt or get rocked, the enemy's really good at then isolating those feelings that got rocked and then flooding them and beating them up with stuff. And, and it just... And meanwhile, the other person that did the offending had knows nothing about it. So, like, it's weird, right? You can see how the enemy could do that. This one I've seen a lot, too. To disrupt and destroy unity is a continuous, sporadic, and impulsive behavior. But people are, like, really sporadic and super impulsive, like, all over the map, just doing the different thing all the time every time you talk to them. It's like people tend to kind of shy away from that person. <laughs> what are they doing this week? I don't know. They're on that thing about the other thing. and They're just all kind of all over the map. It seems to disrupt and kind of destroy unity. It makes it difficult. Unless the other believers like, are really trying to invest in them, being like, really? You talked about the other thing before. Like, How come now we're... But there's not a lot of Christians that really dive into somebody's life like that, kind of approach it that way. So those are things that just disrupt and destroy unity. Isolation, gossip, which usually involves targeting, sporadic, impulsive behavior. You won't see any of that in Jesus, right? You won't see any of it. Within his church circle, his apostles and disciples, there was another side of Jesus we saw with the religious leaders. It was harsh. It was name-calling. The sarcasm attached to it. I guess he knew when to do it. Probably a good rule of thumb is unless we really know when to do it, probably should lay off it for a while. Probably a good rule of thumb. So let me close with this. Let me show you something pretty interesting. Psalm I always think of when I think of unity. Psalm 133. You guys all right? Psalm 133. So 
133. Let's check it out. What page? Okay. So a picture on unity. And it's short. It says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing and even life forevermore. A couple interesting things about this unity picture here. It's a picture, right? It's a picture. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together, brothers and sisters live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. That's a picture of Aaron, who is the priest, who is a priest of all of Israel, when God set up the old covenant way of approaching God through a priest. There is a huge, big to-do ceremony of ordination where all of Israel came out. Millions of people all came out. They all came to watch. Really, God anoint and touch in front of everybody. This is the one I'm speaking through. Where New Testament, you know, now we can just go straight, straight to Jesus, right? But in the Old Testament, they had that mediator there. And Aaron would be there, the head priest, the leader. And so they would take the oil... They would have oil, a lot of times with um, scents as well and spices in it. And they would just anoint, it would come flowing all over. So this guy just gets wet, just almost baptized like in this oil. In front of everybody's ordination, like God has chosen him. And he's now going to stand in place to talk for the people and for God. And it just get all over his clothes, his robe just on everything. And he would smell like it. And people would all know, like, man, he is chosen. And the picture of that is just a beautiful picture of God saying, I am with these, in this instance, Aaron, I am with this person. I am with this person. He's going to be used as my vessel. I'm close to them. Two things. One is that is coming from heaven, right? That unity is coming from God himself, and he's coming and creating it through that person. The other thing is that when we live together as a church family in great unity, it's like the anointing of a priest, of a person chosen by God to a place where he's comfortable, he's familiar, and he has relationship. That's a beautiful picture. That's awesome. We just live in great unity together. It's like the oil just flowing down a priest that has been chosen. It's cool. And then the other thing that's mentioned here, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. There's this dew, right, that would fall on Hermon, and the idea is that that dew that would be there, that would provide water and sustenance, to all the grass and other vegetation that were there. So the idea is that that dew, specifically on that mountain, on Mount Zion in that area, apparently it's like a lot that shows up there. It brings 
life. It brings life when it's there. So that dew is like a picture, an illustration of life that is brought to the vegetation that's around it. So you put it all together when the church, when the believers live in unity, it's like God himself has just like anointed that and he comes and meets there and he's present there. And it brings life within that unity and it brings life that just flows to everything around it. It's a beautiful picture, right? This unity that happens through this oil and through this dew that they're talking about there, it's amazing. It's very cool. So for us, I hope that, you know, us as a church family, man, we are just, which we do, honestly do a pretty good job on, but we always, there's always room to improve, right? Always room to improve as far as just being unified, getting to know each other, digging into people's lives, you know, not in a way that's like nosy or overbearing, in a way where we respect people's space, right? We got to have a clue on that sometimes, um, but the idea is, man, just being in fellowship, being in unity, not, not getting caught up in the minors of life, the majors, the things that matter. Like, I know, so I heard somebody not too long ago, these two guys broke up a friendship, a lifelong friendship, when they were, like, younger guys. They broke up their friendship. You know what they broke it up over? They broke it up over how they believed creation. Whether it was a literal seven days or it was like a longer time period of those days. Like, really? That's the wedge that, that, that split up your life on friendship? That's just sad. That's just sad. Like, you're, you're gonna, you both believe in Jesus. You're both living your life after Jesus. So you got a difference there. That's not a major issue. It's only major if you make it one. God won't be up there saying, hey, listen, you know, you really, you know, you thought this way, it worked out much better for you. That's like lifelong friendship of two believers. Stuff like that's just craziness, right? It's craziness. And then there's just, many times in the church, there's just always issues with people. Issues is like one of the biggest things. I get an issue with someone, I got a problem with somebody. Sometimes they know about the problem, many times, most times they don't. And for whatever reason, church people are not good at just confronting somebody and talking about something in a way that upholds the other person but yet gets their point across. Church people are not very good at that. But that spirit-led conversation, that spirit-led way to handle conflict is to uphold and honor the other person but yet share something that's bothering and do it in a way to where we don't have a two-by-four two by four in our own eye, right? And try and tell them about the speck in theirs. Right? There's a way to do something. There's a way to handle these. And so the enemy knows that we're just not that good at it. He knows that it takes the Spirit to cultivate this in us. And we have to learn these things and live this out. And you better believe he just comes after that stuff and comes after that stuff and exposes where we're weak and where there's issues. So unity is huge. So big for us. So important. And so that's why I can't wait as God continues to do a work with our church family and grows us together that also within the town we work well with other church families and doing some good stuff. 
You know, I'm really looking forward to that. Just call them some by side, which is brothers and sisters in town. So unity is the big deal. And let me just close up with this one final thought. This is it. I know I said it before, but there's just one I just wanted to say real quick. That entire prayer in John 17, that entire prayer in John 17, it exposes one of the greatest lies that the enemy tries to sell on us. It exposes one of the greatest lies. And it gives us some ammunition for that. And here's the lie. You will not change and nothing will ever be different. You will not change and nothing will ever be different. I feel like that has to be screamed to Naugatuck. So many people have bought into that lie. Things will never change and you're never going to be any different. I don't care if you get Jesus or church in your life or not. It's never going to change. You're never going to be any different. You'll be the same old person doing the same thing. Man, in that prayer, in that prayer was a heart that's close to God. That gnosko, we talked about, that knows him intimately and realizes he is our source and makes it so we're never the same. And life around us has no choice but to change. That's a huge one. That's a huge one. That prayer arms us against that lie. says, eh, you'll never change, not going to happen. Even if you want to, it's just going to take forever. So don't even bother trying. Right? It comes after that. Because in that prayer, Jesus is publicly declaring, God, you are my source. You always have been my source. I pray that they would know how to be close to you. How to be close to you. That's what I hope during this fast you've experienced, how to be close to God. And if you haven't, haven't quite hit there yet, make your fast go longer. Make it go longer, you won't lose out. I promise. You definitely won't. So you ready to sing one song and get out of here? So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> so here's the song. Right? We all know it. Uh, based on the Psalms as well. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? We know that one. Let's sing it.